This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Guido's Pizza. Located on International Airport Road in Anchorage, Guido's has been serving the best pizza, pasta, sandwiches, and more since 1984. Guido's is open daily for dine-in service from 11 a.m. to midnight, and they do takeout and delivery until 2 a.m. Whether I'm dining in at Guido's or ordering for delivery, the hardest part for me is always choosing what to get because they have so many amazing items on their menu. If you're looking for a quick bite or want to order food for a big party, Guido's is the place to go. Tell them Jeff from the Landmine sent you. Okay, back here in studio with uh, my buddy Miles Baker. How you doing? Good. Great I've, to be here. I've been trying to get you on the podcast for literally years. We've been talking about this a long time. You've always sure. been working for the government, so it's been kind of hard. But now you're 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 off leash. I mean, you've been. I want to talk about your background a bit. But recently, you were the uh, infrastructure guy for the czar. Mm-hmm. Were you the czar? I that well, was, was not a term wo- I embraced. No, I was calling you infrastructure czar. A it a it sounds obnoxious and b most czars get taken out and shot at some point it's funny how they say czar like this russian czars you know these like but then they've adopted that as for government people for a long time like you'll hear like infrastructure czar drug czar it's that's true came from but anyways you were recently with the governor you left there i guess earlier in the year right january so Mm -hmm. i want to talk a little bit about that Um, but for the folks listening who kind of follow the politics in juno you were you worked for senator stedman a long time ago you worked for the governor you worked for senator murkowski um, and I want to talk about some of these things, but which really fascinating that I learned about you years ago. And I think I saw a picture on your Facebook of you wearing a very pressed, crisp Marine uniform. Mm-hmm. You were a Marine, but you went to Annapolis, the Naval Academy. Correct. So I don't know yeah. how many people, I took that picture one time and I remember I was, I shared it and I said, who is, who is this? Cause you look so much younger. People <sighs> didn't, people couldn't, and you had that kind of that, that, ha- that Marine haircut. High and tight. I think I was 23, maybe in that photo. Only a few, only like a few people. And I said, that's, and then they go, oh my God, that is Miles. Jesus. Lieutenant. Or no, I was a captain then, I think. So you grew up here, right? Yep. Grew up, grew up in Juneau. Went to grade school in Juneau. My folks moved up here with all three kids when I was five. Wasn't your, Um, was your mom or step, somebody was in the legislature, right? My mom's, uh, so my mom got remarried to a guy named Marco Pignalberry. Okay. Uh, once, when my folks split up, several years after my folks split up, he ended up running for office, beat Ramona Barnes when she was... Um, oh, the speaker. The speaker. Wow. Did one term in the House. Um, and then... Uh, hold on, we could do a whole other podcast of what happened there, but basically he didn't run. He pulled off the ballot, uh, didn't run again. The second term. For the second term. Um, so you were how, how old were you? I was out of the state by then. Because I graduated from high school in Anchorage. I ended up grade school Juno. My folks split up. I moved to Anchorage in mid-70s, went to Romig and West. Oh, so you were kind of growing up during the, the pipeline stuff. Oh, yeah. That was how we ended up in Anchorage was my dad's law firm. He was an attorney. Uh, the Pinalberry guy? Or your, your no, my dad, pilot. Bob Baker, Robert okay. Baker. Um, so he came. He was also a Marine, came up, was an attorney in the Marine Corps, came, in, came up to... Uh, they're both from Texas, and he didn't. He, when he got out of the Marine Corps, he didn't want to go back to Texas. He thought Alaska looked amazing, you know, in the late '60s, uh, less than ten years after statehood, and and so he ended up coming to Juneau and and interviewing with a few law firms in Robertson, Monocle, Easton, Bradley, which is I think one of the I don't think they exist anymore. It was one of the second oldest law firms, and anyway, in the mid '70s, they were Juneau based, 
in the mid-70s because of all the pipeline stuff. Uh, they wanted to open an office here, and it just worked out because my folks were splitting up, and so I moved to Anchorage with my dad. So do you remember, I mean, you probably remember a lot of money, a lot going on. It must have been kind of wild, even yeah, for high a, school. Yeah, as a kid, I don't think, you know, so I went to eighth grade through high school. Um, Where'd you go to high school? West, yeah. A lot of people um, went up, to West. I grew up in Turnigan. People have, like, Halcro, I think, like a bunch of people, you know, who are around now. I think Jim, did Jim... Um, Lotzfeld go there, go there. I think he. Yeah. It's it's funny because he he actually. It's like a lot now of people. owns the house I grew up in on Kinnick Avenue in Turnigan. Really, I don't think he lives there anymore, but he he I think he still owns it and rents it or something. But that's a whole a ton, funny ton of current political kind of people. I always went to, went to West. I always it seems des- like a lot. I always describe it as I was kind of graduating from West with the last of these large sort of old Anchorage families, that big Catholic families, the Hickles, Sullivan. the Sullivans, um, the, the Cuddies. Um, that wasn't, they weren't necessarily a huge family, but, you know, it was that, yeah, it was kind of that era, the 70s, um, 80s era. And, uh, but, you know, as a kid, you don't really notice, oh my God, look at the state, it's blowing up because of the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, I, In fact, I think it was, Years and years later, after I moved back up here um, as an adult, you know, I've been back up here uh, almost 20 years, that it's sort of like a light went off. I was like, oh, of course. You know, that's, you know, Anchorage in the mid-'70s. That explains why my dad would open the office and done that. So you're in high school, and then did you – your dad was a Marine, you said, so did you just get, like, an idea to – did you apply to all the academies, like Air Force Academy or West no, Point? No, and or? I – and it's – you know, my dad was a Marine, but I didn't grow up as a military. You know, I was five when he got out of the Marine Corps, and we came – I mean, I remember parts of that. We lived in Japan for three years, which was amazing as a kid, and then I subsequently was stationed in Okinawa when I was in the Marine Corps. But, um, no, as – I was very studious in high school. You know, I did well in high school. And my dad was, there was never any question that, you know, we were all going to go to college. And, but as I recall, I was in, you know, it was my junior year or something. And my dad said, hey, there's this was place he called was the he, Naval Academy. Was he an officer? He was. <clears throat> did, did he go to the Naval Academy? Nope. He's PLC. He, he oh, went okay. to Tulane Law School. And I was born in New Orleans when he was at Tulane Law School. Then he, um, actually, he got a deferment out of college from the Marine Corps for Viet- to, Vietnam? To, to go to law school. So then he went to law school, <clears throat> and then he started his active duty. Was he like a JAG, like a lawyer? In the- um, he was. His first duty station was actually at MCRD San Diego. A little closer to the mic, partner. MCRD San Diego, uh, Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. Oh, you know, my dad, was, was, a, a, my dad was in the Navy commander. 25 years. I was born at Balboa Naval Hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah, he got out right after I was born. But That's a beautiful spot. Yeah, that's where I was, that's where I was born. Um. And by the way, today is the Marine Corps birthday. Oh, yeah, 248 November 10th, years, yeah, right? November 10th. So Coming up on 250. Semper Fi to the Marines out there. Um, but he, uh, his first duty assignment, he was not you know, practicing as an attorney. He was just a series commander at the recruit depot. And then he got stationed in, in Iwakuni, Japan, and uh, was a practicing attorney and you know, would fly. He was based in Japan, but would fly down to Vietnam to represent, you know, different Marines that got in trouble. And So when he told you, stuff. hey, maybe this naval, did you know what the I mean, you probably knew what it was, right? Or? I had no idea. I think generally back then, you know, you get west of the Mississippi. Um, I certainly didn't know anything about it. But, you know, of course, you have to remind people this is 
pre-internet and all that stuff, but I remember they had a very fancy like booklet and he gave it to me and said, maybe you should consider applying. And, and I applied to a, a lot of school. I probably applied to eight or 10 colleges. And um, So you had to go through the, I guess it was probably Don Young would have been the one who uh, Don Young nominated you, right? It was, it was, I it was, maybe it could have been one of the senators too. But. No, it was. It was. Well, you have to get a nomination. Mm-hmm. I, so I got and I got those from all three. Three. I got Don Young, Mike Gravel, and um, Ted Stevens, and then so they get to nominate a slate of Alaskans, right? They get so many a year, and then the Naval Academy still does a selection process, and and you to, to get yeah to get appointed. Yeah. So I I it was as I recall it was Don Young's appointment um, or nomination that ultimately I got and I still it was literally came on a telegram old style telegram so it was a congratulations you've been accepted to like the it was like Miles Baker stop congratulations stop (laughs) you know it was like an old style so was that like of all the ones you applied to was that like your top one or did you were you kind of like I didn't apply to any of the other ones Um, no but I'm saying the other colleges you applied to no, I, pl- I I was kind of all over the map. I applied to Tulane. I applied to Stanford. I applied to Berkeley. I applied to Middlebury uh, University, of Virginia. Um, I I I didn't get into Stanford. I didn't get into UVA. Um, I applied to USC. That was kind of my, my backup school, I guess, at the mm-hmm. time. And it came down to so it you know I thought and of course the process is so extensive. Well, you have to do the medical exam, physical, physical exam. Yeah. You got to get the nominations. All the um, that by the time you know, you're almost, you know, I was super vested in it. And then when I got it, I was like, wow, you know, this is probably the best school I'm I'm getting into. So when you got it, you were like, I'm going, I'm going to the Naval yep. Academy. <clears throat> when I was in high Absolutely. school, I really, really, really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. It was like, it was like my heart was set on the Air Force Academy. You know, mm-hmm. I was in Civil Air Patrol. I played sports. I was extracurricular. I did all the. I got so I got the pre- the the congressional Heather Wilson. I think it was Heather Wilson. Yeah, it was our congressperson from uh, um, New Mexico. New Mexico, yeah. and then I and then I had my dad was retired Navy, so I was able to get. Also, I think it's like president. If you, if your dad's retired, you get like another avenue of like presidential. The, there are some some you know the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of Navy, and then they've got some you know Purple Heart nomination so, special things like that. So know? I got that, and I really want. I was like dead set on Air Force. I want to be pilot, and then, but I applied to like all three: Naval Academy, West Point, and then Air Force Academy. <clears throat> and and I just I, I thought <clears throat> I always thought I was gonna get in. I mean I was like, yeah, convinced because I did you know I was doing good in school and I was in the National Honor Society and I went to I played football and I, I was in Civil Air Patrol and uh, I did not get in. I, I was like devastated. I got waitlisted. Did you consider going to the prep schools? They have a no, prep school option. No, or? I just didn't really. Yeah. I, I I got waitlisted. I mean I. I I only applied to West Point because my dad really wanted me to, at Annapolis. And it turns out I'm colorblind. I found out I was colorblind. So, you know, being a pilot yeah. all of a sudden becomes very, almost impossible. Yeah. I wanted to fly. And then, you know, by my senior year, had they had discovered astigmatism. Like, and, I, flew, like and, I flew growing up. I flew gliders with Civil Air Patrol. I got my yeah. private pilot's license. I, I flew gliders a lot. And Air Force Academy has a glider team. Um, and then so I, I kind of really didn't pursue it that hard. But I I, I was, like, waitlisted. Or, I mean, there, there, I probably... I think if I really would have tried, I could have gone to West Point, but I never mm-hmm. really wanted to. I mean, that was not really. Plus, yeah. it was two thousand three. We just like invaded Iraq, and I was like, I don't know if I want to, you know. Yeah, be I don't. Like I, I don't know. Infantry guy. Um, I, you know, I don't. Th- if I think back on that, I don't. 
a couple things. I don't rem- remember my dad pushing it particularly hard. Um, again, as a as a as a kid, which you certainly were, it's and and once you and, and it may have changed now, but you were allowed to accept and go for up to two years. And as long as you left after your sophomore year, there was no um, service time obligation. Um, a very difficult thing to do once you're there because it's just such an intense competitive environment. But I don't re- I don't recall my dad making a big deal out of the fact that it was a scholarship or that you know he was a marine or anything. Mm-hmm. I just by the time you know you see the pictures of them marching around and you know they're sailing in the in the afternoons and so when you graduate um, you, you can pick navy or marines, right? So the Marine Corps does not have their own. Academy. Yeah, it's um, naval. Because it's under the, the Department of the Navy. Well, it's a separate department. It's a separate branch that would be sacrilege for me to say that's part of, part of the Navy. But um, it the Department of the Navy certainly runs a variety of things because Marine Corps is a small service. Um, they don't have their own commissioning. They don't have their own academy. So, and again, this may have changed, but when I was there, uh, up to 16% of the graduating class each year could go into the Marine Corps. But, and and here's an interesting, so so when I went in 1980, the year Ronald Reagan was elected, dating myself here, um, the graduating class that year, and also women did not, weren't allowed into the service academies until 75, I believe. So my upperclassmen were actually there when there were no women there. So I was in a really interesting transitional time, but, um, the class that graduated my freshman year, my plebe year, as they call it, Marine Corps couldn't fill its billets. Like, you know, it just, you know, everyone would be in the Navy and this and that. By the time I graduated in 1984 with sort of the Reagan revolution and sort of the reinvestment in, in the military. Um, Probably more people wanted to be in the Marine you, if you weren't, If you didn't graduate in the top half of the class, you couldn't get in the Marine Corps. So... It, it, you know, it's just interesting how those things change. Um, and, and they've also, now they require you to pre-select, and they do this for nuclear power. They obviously do this for aviation, for pilots, because those are, those are uh, there's a degree of pre-selection, you know, for physically qualified. And, and, you know, the nuclear Navy, you know, being, you know, down under the water for six months at a time, they're, you know, they want to make sure that people like are. Like in a submarine? submarine? Yeah. You want to make sure people are, are sort of mentally prepared for that sort of a service um, lifestyle. And so... I don't know if this is still the case, my dad, because my dad was on the carrier and the, he was in the Kennedy and the Hornet. And So you have nuclear-powered surface line. But but um, I was like, I, yeah. I always asked him, I said, Would you, did you ever want to go in the submarine? He's like, fuck no, I don't want to go in the... No. Yeah. He, I don't know if it's changing now, but was that is that all voluntary? Or you can't get... I mean, can they assign you to a sub or do you have to want to be on the sub? So, so the weird way that it works still to some degree is, is you go through your four years and you're being ranked among your peers constantly. Um, how fast you run three miles, uh, your leadership evaluations from your peers, your academics, your sports, your, um, you know, everything you get, you get what was called at the time, a whole man multiple, um, it's probably a whole person multiple now, but at the time it was a whole man multiple, which is their equivalent of a sort of a GPA. And so that's fluctuating and changing all the time. But literally at service selection night, the night you raise your hand and pick what you want, that you go into this big room 
and you have all the you have the surface line navy, you have the nuclear navy, you have the aviation, you have the marine corps, and they start with the number one person in the class. And they say, "What do you want?" And 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 again, oh, so once you, it once it's full, you, once it's full, you once can't. it's full, you're done. So if you're at the and bottom, so you're, you're basically whatever's left. Yep. And the marine corps at the time, I went. So I I already knew I couldn't fly at that point. So I just selected uh, marine corps ground, and. When you go to Quantico for the basic officer's course, which is six, six months, uh, they do an, a similar thing where you're constantly being ranked, you know, your marksmanship scores, everything. Um, and they do what they do there is they take the class. And I, if I recall, it was about a 210 person class. They split you into thirds. And then headquarters Marine Corps has basically sent a list. We need this many artillery officers. We need this many combat engineers. We need this many infantry officers. And they split the class into thirds. And they, if they need three infantry officers, as an example, they take one from each third. So they do a, a selection like that, mm -hmm. but, they, but they've already third. And so I finished in the bottom of the top third. So I didn't get any of my first selection. When I first got down there, they give you a three-by-five card. What, what said, did you want to do? Well, when I started down there, I knew I couldn't fly, but I was still kind of interested in doing backseat uh, naval flight officer. So I was oh, still like a back, back of the F-14? Yeah, but what happened is they changed platforms during that time. They got, they got rid of the F-4 and they got rid of the F-14, and so they were moving to these one-seat uh, platforms, and so there was just not... And I'm, I'm now... In retrospect, thankful I didn't go NFO, Naval Flight Officer. But I had picked that. When I first started, I picked Naval Flight Officer, Combat Engineer, and uh, Communications. So what would you end up getting? Logistics. So how long were you, how long were you in for after? Six years, were, six and a half years. So you got it like right at like the Gulf War. First stayed, Gulf War. Um, exactly. I was just having this conversation with somebody today because they had mentioned Marine Corps birthday. And, I, and I was, I'm very proud of my service. I had a great time in the Marine Corps. But I also always point out that I happen to be, because now you mentioned the Marine Corps, people think Afghanistan, Iraq, and um, I happen to be in, commissioned in the Marine Corps in 1984 to 1990. There was literally nothing going on um, combat-wise. There was a the thing with Noriega and Panama. I was going to say Panama, yeah. The, uh, what's and, that, uh, and I, enduring, what was yeah. that called, Enduring? Interestingly, I tried to get the name of that I one. tried to get them to send me down there just so I could do something before because I knew you know at some well, point when was, I when, was, when was Grenada y yes that Grenada. was in the 80s wasn't it uh, or the Falkland was it Grenada I Grenada think was, was like Falkland too was in the 80s and then when Grenada. I was in the Naval Academy is when the the they bombed the Beirut uh, Marine barracks in Beirut but that was oh yeah that was that, that was, was not really that was just a terrorist incident but it was hugely impactful on so you course. did six you did you ever think about doing the 20 like the career or did you not really yep I had a regular, what's called a regular commission. They don't do that anymore. Um, but coming out of the Naval Academy at the time, you had what's called a regular commission versus a reserve commission. And so you, you really serve, you, you don't have to, most, most people, if they come out of a commissioning source, other than that, they're on, under contracts. And so after the end of your three-year contract, you have to compete to stay in and, and because they need more junior officers than senior yeah. officers, it starts getting very competitive. Um, so I, you know, I didn't want to give up a regular commission until I knew for sure that, and I, I 
um, gave the Marine Corps and a lot of opportunity to keep me. I tried to do, you can't really make, I, I felt you couldn't make a career in the Marine Corps unless you're in an operational MOS. And I was in a support MOS by no fault of my own, just because of the way they do the quality spread when I graduated from the basic school. Um, I tried to move into Intel. Um, I tried to go into a program called the Foreign Area Officer Program, where I would go to uh, the Defense Language Institute in Monterey. Oh, yeah, study, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like that's where all the people go and learn. Study like, yeah. language. I tried to get sent down to Panama just to be the guy down there. Um, and at every turn, my 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 local commanders supported me, but at every turn, they were like, "No," because they needed logistics officers. Yeah, they're like, "Hey, hey, you're, you're, we and like where like, you, we oh, like you where you are." You know, it's sort of the old joke. You know, if the Marine Corps wanted you to have a wife, they'd issue you one. You know, it's sort of it's. I hope they've gotten better, um, but of the services, I think they could do a much better job of trying to match people up with their interests. So when we we met years ago, you had um, told me that you were. Before, because I was like trying to get your background, and, and you came back in early two thousands and worked for Bert Stedman, I think, right in the, in the legislature. But weren't weren't you doing like music, or you were doing something with like yeah, music producing in yeah. L A. Right, you were like in that kind of L A. music kind of world. I was right? for a long time, thirteen years. So I I had always enjoyed music. I'd always played music, uh, played drums growing up, and in fact, one of the places I applied for school was Berkeley College of Music. I applied to UC Berkeley, but I also applied to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And, um, you know, got into the Naval Academy. I was like, all right, I'm going to go do, get my engineering degree, and then we'll, we'll do this later. But you don't really realize it. But it turns into even in my case, I got out after six years. That was, a 10, that was an 11-year commitment. And so when I knew, when I got out, I was living in Beaufort, South Carolina, I said, what do I want to do next? I said, I want to go pursue the music business. And so uh, my sister was living in L.A. She had moved there about a month prior. And I moved, I packed up my car and I drove to L.A. And I had an amazing next. So you're like 30, around 30, out of the military. You're I kind was of 20, I think I was 28 or so, yeah. So you're kind of like free to go wherever you want, do whatever totally you free. want. Totally free. No, I, no, I, no I had, more military orders. Uh, well, and, Desert Shield was happening. So when I, they switched me to a reserve commission. Oh, you thought maybe you were going to get called back? Yeah. And, you know, I, I never did. Um, How long were you in the reserves for? Um, I think it was only about three years. They eventually, you know, at some point they don't call you. It's, there's a difference between sort of a reserve unit like Senator Dan Sullivan is in where he has a specific billet here in Alaska. There's mm-hmm. a recon unit, and they come and drill in that, with that specific unit. And then there's a thing called the Independent Ready Reserve where you're just sort of available if they need you, and that's the one yeah. I was in. But, yeah, so I had a great... Great experience in Los Angeles. I worked, um, started in the proverbial mailroom at uh, Island Records. I was going to say, like, where'd you, did you just, did you know anybody or did you just I knew nobody look for but it, my look, sister and she was working in, in sort of the early days of cable television. Did you like show up um, to places or did you apply or how'd you? Dude, I was, like I approach everything, I was really well prepared. I'd read every book possible on career changing, uh, informational interviewing, um, how do you put yourself shoulder to shoulder with people in the industry you want to be involved in, you know, networking. And I very quickly, within a couple weeks, I had internships, unpaid internships at Island Records, ATV Music, which was Michael Jackson's music publishing company, um, a 
little firm called Total Music Public Relations. So this is like right around the time of like the growth of kind of like NWA and like the kind of the rap started to really mm-hmm. explode at that point. So were, were you, 1990. This yeah, is, were, you this around, is, were you around that? Yeah, I mean, we had, I mean, you know, it was around before it hadn't really gotten mainstream. Those were the days where, you know, MTV was still very powerful and MTV was not really playing. That's what I'm talking about. Like it, it started to go, you know, there's like a movie, you know, started a Compton yep. movie, but I mean, really that was that time where it really started to blow yep. up kind of mainstream. Yep. We worked during that time. I worked at Island records. Um, I worked at Arista records. And when I was at Arista's, when we formed, uh, the face records with, um, with Babyface and, um, LA Reed, and so Tony Braxton, TLC. Um, so you met the all uh, sure. You met all these people. Um, I I I met a lot of them. We were, I worked a lot of very. So you, you started like you said in the mail like mailroom type. But like, what did you what did you end up eventually? I st- so I started in the mailroom working for free, and then I really wanted to work at Island, and I was only going in there one day a week, and um, a receptionist job opened up. And at the time, Island Records, Island Films, and Island Music Publishing were all sharing a floor, and there was a main receptionist. And the woman that had hired me as an intern, Melanie Gold, who remember Andrew Gold, Lonely Boy? Do you remember that? Mm. Marnie Nixon. Marnie Nixon is her mom. Marnie Nixon did. I've heard of Mar- Yeah, I've heard that uh, name. Yeah, it's a very, very famous. Um, she, she was interning at Island, and she took a liking to me. I was old. Most of these interns were 18. I was coming out. I was a captain in the did, Marine Corps. Did they all, did they, like, know? Showing up with a tie. Did they know day. you were like, hey, this Marine guy is here now? They must, they must, did I you, like, really downplayed it. I never, sh- I never used my resume the entire time I got jobs in the music Why business. not? Annapolis? It, hey, it just was... wasn't, it wasn't something. I, it would have scared a lot of those people off, frankly. It just would have. Yeah, I guess I can see that, yeah. It's, you know, very conservative. Who's this, who's this military guy? This, this is, I mean, Chris Blackwell owned Island when I worked there, and he was mostly in Jamaica and New York, but he would, uh, when Chris Blackwell would come out, he'd be wearing his flip-flops, and he'd go back to his office back and start smoking, you know, weed. Like, I'm, I'm this is, so I'm going from an yeah, environment, like stringent Marine, Marine Corps yeah. environment to the chairman of the organization. They had just been bought by Polygram. You know, is in town, you know, smoking weed, which, you know, now people are, what's a big deal? Well, you know, 1990. Yeah, back then it was a big deal. That was a different, different thing. So, um, no, I never, I, I never used my resume as an interesting. It's just one of those businesses you get in. I was working in the mailroom and they offered, they said, well, you know, there's a receptionist job. It paid 17 grand a year. And I was like, if what, I, if what's, I'm that, getting, what's that equivalent to today? Maybe. Fifty or oh, fifty thousand. I, I don't know, but I was like, man, you know, I naively thought, well, gosh, if I've only been here a couple months, and they're offering me a receptionist job, then maybe if I stick around. And the very next day was the day I was going. I was interning with um, the guy that ran ATV Music, which subsequently got by, by Sony. But Michael Jackson's. It was the Beatles. It was Lennon McCartney catalog. It was a huge catalog, and I was working. I was going in one day a week to the creative team, which were three guys. And these guys at that time, it was like, oh, my God, this is what I want to be like. I, they have these glass offices and cool, cool gold ca- records everywhere cool and cats. these huge stereo. And their day consisted of showing up at about 10 in the morning um, and playing music and saying, oh, that's, that's a good song. Maybe we should buy the publishing for that or maybe we should pitch that to one of our artists. So 
that was the day that I was going to get a meet as the new intern, the president of the company. And he said, I want to meet all the interns. Why do you want to do, you know, why are you interning this and that? And I had read all these books, right? And I had this idea that whatever you do when you're in one of these informational interviewing, just show your interest in learning, show that you're ready to, you know, you, you don't need to get paid right now. You're just thankful for the opportunity. And I went on this whole pitch and he looked at me and he said, that's interesting because most people do this because they want a job in the music business. I said, well, no, 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 I want a job in the music business. And we had this great conversation. And, and during that conversation, he made me comfortable enough to say, well, because I had just started interning with them and I felt really weird telling them I had this potential job offer. And I said, well, I have a job offer from Island Records. And he was like, how, how long have you been in town? I said, two months. He said, I don't care what they're paying you. There's a hundred people that would do it for less. And would you, it's one of the best pieces of early advice I got. He said, would you rather be in there one day a week showing them what you can do or five days a week showing them what you can do? And he said, I don't care if you, I don't care that you only interned here two weeks, you know, go forth and flourish. And so I took the job and it, it was amazing. I mean, it, eight, seven years later, I was running, I was head of sales and marketing for a big national uh, label. We had Tool, was our big band that we Oh, really? No broke. shit. Yeah. Wow. Tool I, 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 Matthew Sweet. I, that, that was and, my, because I, I graduated in 03, so I grew up in like in the 90s. Yeah. I, I know Tool, yeah. Yep. So worked, but but over the course of, between Zoo, Arista, um, BMG Classics, I did classical and jazz music for three and a half years. So were you, were you living this kind of like, I don't, I don't want to say phony, but this like LA life where like you're going out all the time. It's like who you know, you're going to have to like, you know, you're at these events and it's, you're like rubbing out. I mean, is that like a lot of networking, a lot of like bars, dinners, is that yeah, is that? It, yeah, it's a very industry town. Um, and of course, this is before the, I got out there about two things were happening. One, all the independent labels were being consolidated by big corporations, Polygram, Sony, Warner Brothers. Were you, were you there when Napster happened, or were you? Going? Yes. So that. And so I was in. I was working in retail sales, artist development was sort of my area. So, band, our bands would go on tour. I'd do the tour support marketing around the tour venues, and the retailers would, you know, get get our buyers backstage. We do everything we could to advertise and promote around the tours, and then my job was to get the records. We were had actual physical CDs and records then into retail and to um, get buyers to, you know, buy a lot of them. I remember growing up, you know, and like, what, were those, what was that store called? I forget the name. What was that big music? Tower Records was the West no, Coast. No, what was the other one? We go, like, at the mall, you go to this, uh, all the CDs and stuff. Warehou we, well, there's Warehouse, there was Music Man. Music Man, yeah. Uh, Peaches, there was, um, I mean, later when Best Buy started, I was in the business what was that? when oh, Best man, Buy I opened. I remember the name of that one big store. It was like the big, big, you'd go in there and like, you're like, oh my God, these, and these CDs were like, 15 or 20, back then it was like, you know, it was kind of yeah, expensive. it was amazing. But but the, but Napster, MP3s, digitization, the... iPod. The quick move for digital... Music was one of the first pieces of content that moved online, and it fundamentally destroyed the business in, in a lot of ways. And it, it needed to be sort of destroyed um, in favor of artists because artists typically... Do you think it's true? Um, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of days ago, and I, I think part of this is just 
how things have gone with this exclusive kind of access and all this. But when mm-hmm. I was growing up, like Dave Matthews came to town mm-hmm. and Weezer we came. Matthews, and, and, yeah. you know, I'd, I'd pay 50 bucks or it was like, it was reasonable. These tickets now to these concerts are like $1,000, 2000 mm-hmm. regular tickets. Mm-hmm. If you, Like Taylor Swift or or Metallica was in Vegas a couple, mm-hmm. any concert, anybody big is so mm-hmm. expensive. Is that because someone told me it's because, well, before like they sold CDs and, you know, you, the money was there. And now like they don't get as much money from, you know, Spotify or iTunes or, I mean, is that true? Or is, I, I don't think that's the case. I it's, think it's just because everything's gone so crazy now. Yeah, it's partly true. I mean, the, the, you had to be a very successful selling artist to make money on physical sales. You had to be over gold, typically, you know, 500000 because the way it kind of worked is the labels would front the band the money to go into the studio, and, of course, you had to have a studio. Nobody, You couldn't sit at home and do this on a home laptop. You had expensive studio time. And then the label knew how to market and promote and get you on um, radio stations and get you covered in Rolling Stone and, and whatever. Um, and they recouped every nickel of that marketing cost. They Before re- you got paid. They recouped out of the artist's share. So, so typically, most of those artists lost money. And for years, you know, the label would stick with you for two, three albums. And if you finally hit, then that back catalog w- would sell and it would be what the label. But so what happened, though, is that the artists really always only made money, most of them, on touring and merch. And so now that music is, in essence, free online, um, they make no money on physical music sales. I mean, someone like Taylor Swift that's getting, you know, billions of, of plays, you know, she's making minuscule amounts on each of those from Spotify and, and, and YouTube. But, you know, if you've got a billion of them, it adds up. Um, so that's, that's part of it. And then the cost of these productions, those types of productions are, are substantial. So, so, you know, I think of this movie straight out of Compton and it shows that kind of nasty side of the business with the Jerry Heller. Is is that, was that, did you experience that? Like, Oh yeah. People, death row records, all of a sudden, like they they do all, they're they're all very successful Mm -hmm. and they don't have any money. Mm -hmm. Was that, did you see that? Or was that, was that part of that Mm -hmm. business? Biggie Smalls was on our bad boy. We we distributed bad boy at Arizona. Really? Did you meet him? I never met him. No, but that whole West coast, East coast thing with, um, uh, yeah, those early are, I mean, at Island we had, you know, Young MC and Tone Loke. I don't know if you remember oh, those. I remember Tone Loke. Those, sure, yeah. those were so, you know, and today people would scoff and say, wow, it's not really hip hop. But um, that was early. That was the most vanilla that radio stations would play. There there was R&B radio. There was album-oriented rock radio. There was alternative radio. There was not really stations playing exclusively hip hop rap at the time. And so, you you know, those artists need to be palatable to that audience, and so it was a very different time. So did you see the, like, you were on the business side, did, I mean, yeah. is it really that, I mean, like anything else, I'm sure a lot of money, cutthroat, contracts, cutthroat. I mean, yeah. did you see, see that kind of stuff? Very. I'll give you a quick cutthroat story. We had, um, so we were working on, I this is the album I worked, I'm the most proud of, and I worked a lot on, is was Tool's uh, second full-length album called Inema. And, um, you know, from start to finish, promoting, like traveling the whole country, 
you know, playing it for buyers, getting, you know, doing all the promotion. So you'd, you'd go on tour? You'd go, you'd go out there on the... On, on I wouldn't on tour, but I would take... I, I was, we were not traveling with the band, but when they're in Chicago, I'd fly to Chicago, and I'd get my buyers, and we'd go to the show and go backstage and, and mm-hmm. get, the, get the buyers to get their pictures with Maynard. And, you know, well, <laughs> that was the... To your earlier point, it's, it was a lot of schmooze. Yeah. Um, super fun business but a lot of craziness in that business so you're doing this album oh so at the time records always came out on a tuesday and radio stations around the country always add new songs they evaluate their playlist and if it's top 40 station it's called top 40 because they typically played 40 songs in rotation and it's very hard to get on those those playlists and I didn't do that. That was a whole separate side of the business, radio promotion. But my colleagues were doing radio promotion, and I'd do the retail. Um, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain had died, and Geffen Records decided, came out of nowhere. Because you knew what all your competitors were putting out three months ahead of time on the Tuesday of your release. And so you were always strategically working around that. And... Um, Geffen Records decided to put out a Nirvana's Greatest Hits record after Kurt Cobain died on the same Tuesday as the Tool Inema record. Oh, so it didn't... And I was like, you fuckers. And so sure enough, we debuted Billboard, first week of Billboard music sales, Nirvana Greatest Hits number one and Tool Inema number two. I was like... After all that work, that was, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was still, I mean, it was still a huge success. And that band is amazing. But, um, yeah, so I did that. And then I worked for NBC Entertainment. I worked in the television business for two years. I uh, went to grad school, got my MBA, um, started an internet, I guess what you'd call today a, a web development firm with a buddy of mine from Disney, uh, who who ironically is from Alaska, even though we met. He's from Spence Bovee. He's from Sitka, even hmm. though we, he was working at Disney. Um, advanced technologies at Disney, and uh, we formed a thing called December Interactive. Made no money, but you know had a good time in the in the nineteen ninety eight ninety nine. You know, internet. You know, it was booming. You know, um, music's a big part of it. There's all sorts of you know Napster's going off. There's all sorts of music player apps, and everyone's trying to figure out the business model. Um, and so I remember when I was yeah first year in college. There was something called Bear Share. Do you remember that? It was like you could go in there and like download music. It was it was probably like illegally. It was kind of like a Napster thing, but there was like you could go and get like anything, you know. And I remember being so different growing up, where you had to like buy the CD. You had to buy the CD. And everything just. But changed. it was it was interesting because I lived through a lot of things. I lived through the 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 um, the switch to long box to the CD long box, and then the industry said, "Why are we wasting all this?" You know cardboard so we're going to go to jewel case only and of course all the retailers had to re-merchandise all of their mm-hmm. equipment um i lived through SoundScan coming in and replacing billboard so they used point of purchase sales for tracking because you could you could basically do you know you could bribe retailers tell them hey you know when when billboard calls tell them you sold more than you actually did right yeah but once they switched to the point so- of purchase so at some, now at some point you move back to Alaska, right? I mean, yeah. It just seems like such a difficult or um, big switch from L.A., big music, TV, partying, mm-hmm. all that scene to like 
go from going from that back to like why'd you move back to Alaska? That seems like it would have been hard for a lot of people who are accustomed yeah. to that kind of lifestyle. Well, I had gone, I went to UCLA, I got my MBA, and I really, I felt like at that point I had music, television, and internet. And I was kind of tired of LA, and so I wanted to move to London or New York and work for a big media company. And I got my MBA, and I spent two years trying to find that job. I mean, I went to London, and I couch surfed, I went to New York, and I just, it, I graduated from uh grad school like two weeks after 9-11 and so there was just and so I had been kind of beating my head against the wall um and meanwhile Marco who we mentioned earlier passed away he was at the time he was the city manager for Haynes um Mm -hmm. and even though my mom was living in Anchorage they were doing sort of this remote thing and I came up to help her out and oh so it wasn't like you had Plan to move back. No. Or like, I'm going to go back to Alaska. No. In fact, and you and I have talked about this before, I had a lot of irons in the fire. I was pitching a reality television show about an independent record label similar to Project Greenlight. Remember, we, we talked yeah. about this. So, Well, and, you know, I think some of the people listening might know we, we tried to pitch. You yeah. were involved, me and Scott Jensen and you and a few, a few, a few others about doing this kind of Juno-based show. About the legislature, which I, which I still think would be a fucking big hit. I do too. And we yeah. put, we put together a pitch deck. We tried to get investors yeah. and do all this stuff. And and you know, the, I, I've thought a lot about that because we pitched it in nineteen, and we had the you know the little kind of uh, promo video we made, the, the sizzle reel, sizzle reel, and yeah, you know, if we would have done it, it would have been during COVID, which would have been even more fascinating. It would have think yeah. about in that session of yeah. being able to capture all that, you know, but yeah, we weren't able to. You know, and, and the more I've thought about it, I mean, I, I think it be, would be a good show regardless. But to get really what you need, which is in the caucuses, which is behind, yeah. it'd be so hard to get anybody to agree to that. But we, I think you could do a lot with even with, even, with just watching it as it is. Because yeah. it's so, and you told me something I'll never forget. And you're, and you're right, because this is my sixth session going down. This will be number six in a row. Just when you think it can't get any fucking crazier or wilder or weirder, yeah. it always, something always yeah. happens that you're like, like whether it's like the effective date thing or, you know, whether, whether it's some fight over some pointy or just whatever it might be, right? Like yeah. some obscure bill and some procedural thing or some, it's just every time something happens. Yeah, it is. It is pretty crazy because I've been in and, in and around, not not all 20 years of, of the time I've been back up here. I haven't been, you know, boots on the ground in Juno every one of those years, but I've certainly been involved in following it and it's, yeah, it's fascinating, but I, but I hit. It's weird because I never thought. The longer I stayed out of Alaska, the never th- I never thought I'd move back to Alaska. Um, so I, you came back to Anchorage or Juneau? Well, when you came back to help your mom, uh, what happened is I had been looking for a job for so long. I finally just said, you know what? I have always thought, even though I never thought coming back to Alaska was in it for me, I always thought working in politics in Alaska would be fun. Um, my sister had worked for Ted Stevens for a little while. You know, my mom was married to Marco. I mean, you know, Alaska, it's everybody's hobby a little bit. So I said, as long as I'm going to go back there, my mom had said, will you come down to Juneau and be my plus one for Frank Murkowski's inaugural stuff in January of 02, uh, 03. Oh, two, yeah. yeah. He, he, he won in November two, yeah. of 02, so three. So that's the year Palin ran for, I think, lieutenant governor, right? Right around yeah, there, she, somewhere she around there. And she yep. lost, but yep. then that was, yep. that was that was after Knowles was ter- termed out. Yep. So so I said, well, let me let me just network a little bit while I'm down there, and uh, I went to Juno for a week with my mom. Uh, 
my dad, ironically, my dad's longtime long part, law partner was Jim Clark, oh, who is now Frank Murkowski's chief of staff. Chief of staff. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I managed to get in to see Jim Clark. He's still around. I've, I've met him before. Yeah. 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 I managed to get in to see Jim Clark, and he said, well, you know. Uh, Please tell me you dropped the Naval Academy <clears throat> one there. Yeah, yeah. Well, That's he knew, the time when you dropped the Naval Academy. Yeah, he knew about that one. But I, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to come back to Alaska, and I really want to be in Juneau, because I liked Juneau. Like, the thought of coming back to Anchorage to me at that time was sort of like, mm -hmm, you know, because when I left in the 80s. Um, but Juneau is gorgeous. I still love Southeast as part of, you know, and I've now subsequently um, – Spent a long time in Southeast because I ended up getting, um, long story well, short, you, you always, I couldn't get a job with, the, Jim Clark was like, Miles, um, love your dad and, you know, you seem great, but we're staffed up and I'm not going to fire somebody to hire you. So, uh, at, least he's, at least he's honest. He's, at least he's honest. And so. I just say real quick before I forget, you, you yeah. for a long time were running this cool spot in Juneau, this kind of. I don't know if you call it a penthouse or what it was, but. Well, across from the uh, Baranoff. Great yeah. spot. I mean, you had, yeah. the, you had that like. That big room a and there was a loft. Yeah. And it was just a really like that was kind of everybody, everybody knew like Miles got LA. The, Miles LA got the, to, Miles got LA the cool spot. LA comes to Juno. Huh? Uh, LA comes to Juno. Yeah, you know, but you had the cool uh, kind of that cool spot. That was, yeah. So anyway, it didn't happen that I, I ended up going back to LA. I was still in LA at the time, and a whole another year goes by, and I come back in December to again sort of the anniversary of Marco's passing, and I said, well, let me try the legislature, and so I had a lot of people that. Helped me out. Ginger Johnson, who's one of my mom's best friends and next door neighbor to Paulette Simpson. I've known her forever. This is like 03, 03. Okay. Ginger, um's husband, Rick Urian, who had been a legislator. He's since passed. Um, but he, they, you know, they were like Miles. They helped circulate my, they said, you know, here are the legislators that it was one of those because what happened is Frank got appointed a governor. And then he appointed a bunch elected of elected governor. Elected, I'm sorry. Yeah. And then he, he uh, appointed a bunch of legis legislators into his cabinet. And so there was an unusual sort of turnover in the first year of a two-year mm -hmm. session that, that was m more unusual. And so I had some people that said, here are some, here are some people that need staff. And I went and I tracked them all down. So it was, it was Bert Stedman who had just been appointed. It was Nick Stepovich who had just been appointed. It was Vic Coring on the Valley. Oh, boy. Uh, Peggy Wilson and Natasha Von, or I'm sorry, um, um, Nancy Dahlstrom. Who I, had, and, who I had on the podcast recently, we talked about the fact that she ran against Lisa, almost beat Lisa in the primary. Yes. 50 votes or something. Lisa wins. There was nobody, I looked it up, there was no Democrat. Lisa then gets, you know, Frank appoints her to the Senate seat, and then Frank appointed Nancy yep. to the House seat. One of the smartest things he did. Which is very, yeah, very very good move. Which is, you know, team of rivals kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That was smart. Yep. Um Anyway, Bert was the only one that was a senator. He, um, I never met the guy before. We had lunch at the Captain Cook, and he called me two days later and said, "You want to come to Juno?" And I was so like, Bert back then had nothing. He had one. He he had none of the kind of. Now it's almost like legends, like the Bert Stedman, like yep. locks people in the office no, or this is his first year. Just play, whatever he always wins. You can, Bert doesn't lose. Yeah. You know, so he had none of that around him. He was Nobody, just the, yeah. the new guy. Yeah, wasn't Gary Stevens around that time? Gary, Gary had gotten appointed over from the house. He had been in the house yeah, prior. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I said, great. And he, he said, I've got one year on this. He was pointed to the last year of Robin Taylor's four-year term. He's like, he's like i got to win to keep going. He said, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm, 
I'm only going to commit to a year anyway, so this sounds perfect. You know, I'll come work for you. I'll test it out. And um, never looked back. I went down to Juno, and you're right. We were in the basement. He was in the Senate majority, but he really wasn't, you know, people thought, oh, this guy got appointed. Nobody knew who he was. He may not get reelected. And I, he, he said, you've got to move to Ketchikan, though, because half of his district was in Ketchikan. So oh, I wow. moved to Ketchikan and ran his campaign. We killed it because I brought my full scale who do you run LA marketing? Who do, who do you? <laughs> Into that. Oh, I could just see, yeah, you bring um, in like that TV, radio. That yeah, was funny. Music we, thing. I could tell a whole, that was very funny. Bert, Bert's awesome. Um, but it was um, Dave Landis. I don't know who that is. Um, yeah. who's, who's a catch can guy. He's, he has since served on the assembly. Was it close? Because now Bert's like, I mean, you know, Trump said he could like kill somebody in like the middle of the street and still what? I, mean, well, I feel Bill, like I Bill feel like, Williams was the co chair of House Finance. And his staff at the time was Pete Eklund, Randy Raro, um, and Bill had been the co-chair of House Finance for a long time, and people thought he was going to run for the Senate seat against Burt. And so that first session, you know, he was our House member for half the district, but we also thought he was going to run against us, so it was this weird thing. Why didn't he? He, um, at the end of the day, he, um, and I got to really know later and respect Bill Williams is, is awesome. Um, I mean, um, yeah, Bill Williams, I was thinking Bill Thomas, but they're both awesome. But, um, he just decided, I think to retire because frankly, as I re- remember it, it was going to be an uphill battle because if you recall, Ketchikan was annoyed that the Senate seat was not Ketchikan. And, um, Jim Elkins was originally appointed to that seat. And between the time Murkowski appointed him to the seat and the legislature could meet to confirm. He had so pissed off the governor that governor unappointed him and then oh, selected yeah. this I, guy from Sitka named Bert Stedman. I, I remember, yeah, that was before my time, but yeah, I, I remember hearing yeah. about that. Well, go back to what I was saying, like, now it's like, I mentioned the Trump thing and committing, you know, killing somebody in Fifth Avenue. I think Bert could literally, like, get arrested for something pretty bad and still win. I mean, that's how I feel like locked in Bert is down there. I mean, he just... He always wins by so much. He's got a, he's got a yeah. very very unique district. He's a very unique guy. He's been incredibly successful for the district, um, and uh, he's worked really hard down there. Um, but he's you know he's a southeast guy. He's and he um, it, it he's he's got a district where they don't have a lot of oil and gas jobs. Um, you know, they benefit like all Alaska from the oil and gas industry, but Bert, and I don't want to, you know, single out oil and gas, but he, he has a unique district because he's, he, you know, you can be business friendly and sort of a, um, uh, you know, sort of right of center and a conservative, uh, Republican, um, you know, wrangle. Ketchikan, Petersburg are all no, pretty. He's, he's, he's very, you're right. He's very unique and, and the he, district has... Yeah, something to do with that, but he's just very and he's very smart and he's the way he's. I mean, I think he pisses a lot of people off because he yeah. he like doesn't lose. You know, I mean, like he always finds a way to yeah. get his way. Well, we did. You know, I we had a great. I had an eight year. You know, from the start for eight years. He had the one him. deal where yeah. something happened with when was that back when Parnell was got didn't he did kind of lose and then he ended up being like in the basement or something right for. A little bit. Uh, it was he, like some chair of... Tra- but, then he, but then he worked he, his way back. He well, became co-chair He, he again. fell out of favor, I'd say. Um, you know, he... I've, 
I've only I've worked for three elected officials since I've been back: Bert, uh, Senator Murkowski, and um, Mike Dunleavy, and all Republicans. Um, you know, Dunleavy clearly the most conservative of 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 the three. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, both both Senator Murkowski and Senator Stedman, you know, many times over their careers, as you know, have not been embraced by the Republican Party. You know, there were you know, rhinos or there are two. I mean, not even middle uh, road. Lisa, hostile. And I mean, Lisa in particular funny. with the right in, and so, um, um, I forgot where I was going with this, but um, what kind of bird getting kicked out of? Oh, and and so. I don't remember now all the details, but at some point where he had been, you know, a powerful part of a coalition in the Senate and... Yeah, because in 2012, uh, Republicans won the Senate back. Yes. And then he was basically still in the new Republican majority, but they were like, you know, yeah. you go over there, you get the shitty office in the, you know... Yeah, he became chair bottom of Hess. Floor. Yeah, he was... Chair <laughs> of Hess and uh, he... Um, which, which looking back... against Hess, but... Which looking back yeah. now from what I've, you know watched the last in-person six years, but even even for the last eight or ten years, like, that just seems to me, like, now an impossibility. Because he's such a part of the Senate. He's such a a key figure in kind of what happens well, there. It, it was short-sighted, I think, because um, he, you know, as, for, as much as he does for his district and does well, he also takes on these tough um, statewide issues. Well, if, 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 if he wasn't, you know, if he was not the co-chair of the Finance Committee in the last several years, and it was somebody, other people, and the House, for example, they would have, I mean, this guy almost single-handedly, I mean, he had some help too, but prevented the the, the kind of liquidating of the, per, of the permanent fund through, through big, big dividends. I mean, if there was enough people who, who want those to get reelected, they would they would do that, you know, especially in the mm-hmm. election years. I mean, this happened last year where they, press oil went up with this Russia-Ukraine thing, but I mean, you know... It, that, that guy doesn't, you're right, he doesn't care. He does the right thing, and he doesn't worry about the repercussions, which it's pretty rare down there, I'd say, in Juneau. Yeah, and he, well, and uh, like I said, he's fortunate. I think he's got that strong support of his of his district. But, um, but yeah, so he, you know, he was, that was one of those moments where he was sort of in the basement, as he would say, or out in the woodshed, and, you know, now he's back in full form. Uh, I got to... Um, I gotta be somewhere here at six. I gotta be. Yep. But well, I want to have you back on because I want to kind of. We've done like a big, like a big you know, arc. We, well, we've done like the the round, you know, round one. But I want to go. We'll do have you back on soon and kind of go into round two or about you know working for Senator Murkowski or a statewide director yep. and then working for Governor Dun- and then, you know talking about Juno and the change. Yep. What I really, really want to talk to you about is how you've seen the changes over the years and mm-hmm. what has changed for the better, what has changed for the worse, and. Because I mean, you you've been, literally been down there for a big part of the, you know, yeah. And changes. I've, been, I've I've been fortunate, I think, because I've had um, really well wrapped between legislative, congressional, um, public corporation, including the university, like AGDC. Oh yeah, you were the, the university. Yeah. So I worked for two public corporations, um, and now the executive branch. So, and all in sort of a liaison public policy capacity. So uh, I think that's given me sort of a unique perspective. Real quick, last thing, I'm going yeah. to have you back on to, to kind of do a follow-up, but uh, tell the story you told me once about you were working for Senator Murkowski, you were her statewide director, and there was some gun group who like was, you know, the NRA was like 
not hardcore enough for them. I mean, they they were like, screw the NRA. We're like, we're the real yeah. gun people. And and I, I guess she couldn't make it or she was, something happened, right? And, and like you had to. Yeah, so I was. This is a great story. I was Senator Murkowski's state director at the time. I had gone to D.C. to work for her um, and then had come back as state director. And, and, the, and these people, this whatever gun group, they, they, they were like, yeah, the NRA is like too moderate. Like screw the NRA. We're well, and she's, you know, she's always had, you know, an A-plus rating from the NRA and all that. But Congress at the time, this would have been 2013, 2014, 2014, was, I, I don't remember what had happened nationally, but they were, it was the first time in a long time there was a legitimate discussion of some gun regulation. The Sandy Hook maybe or? Per, perhaps. Um, and so I really... Part of the, my job as state director was to get her in front of tough audiences and, and to, you know, outside, frankly, her comfort zone and get around. And and, and um, the Alaska Machine Gun Association. <laughs> these these which, are ones are like, fuck the NRA. Like, they're too, they're yeah. too weak. They're too moderate. So they meet. And, and Mike Hawker actually was a member at the time. Alaska um, Machine Gun Association. Yeah. And they met out of that pizza place in Eagle River, like on a monthly basis oh, yeah, or yeah. something. And so I got tentative approval from the senator. She was didn't really want to go do it, but I was like, you know, we got to go do it. And um, we booked it, and of course they promoted the hell out of it. The, well, I'm sure they were and like so excited. People, yeah. people that were typically not showing up at these monthly things. And then she gets, you know, she flies in from D.C. and she gets the flu. And she she legitimately had the flu. And so I thought we were just going to cancel it. And she called me, and I'm pretty good on my feet. You know, there are a lot of issues I can, you know, talk about. But she called me and said, Miles, you need to go do that one for me. And I was like, oh, my God. That's like in the snake, in the so, snake pit. So I had to, for the next two hours, I called all of our D.C. policy guys because I hadn't really been following all the ins and outs of the, of the, you know, the gun show loophole and all these different, like, what's a, what's a good word and a bad word and, like, how are the votes are coming. And I didn't. I had to get a two-hour crash course, and then I drove out there, and I went. And, of course, they didn't know Senator Murkowski wasn't going to be there. Oh boy. I sort of intentionally didn't do that, even though it makes it a little tougher. But And so I went out. It was packed in there, um, and I just went up to the front room, and I said, I'm really sorry. The senator is not going to be here you know, tonight. And um, I said, but I'm going to do my best job you know, here to answer your questions and represent and and so I just said, I had thought on my way down. You should have started with like folks. I said, no, I, don't, I don't own a machine gun, but I am a former Marine. I was just, I was just going to say. I'm an expert marksman. I was just going to say, that's your opener, <laughs> folks. Marine. That's me. That probably, so, that probably cooled so I, the room I off I felt a like bit. the tension went down a little bit. Yeah. And then it went on for like two hours. And it was interesting because it turned into more of a, I was almost moderating between different members of the team of the club were arguing with each other on different things. And, and to a person... Um, the ones that were the harshest, uh, I stayed, you know, everyone sort of left and, and the ones that had been kind of the harshest came up to me and said, you know, thank you so much for coming and answering questions. It, it was just interesting. It was an interesting. That's a great story. I love yeah. It. I love it. Miles, sorry. One of the. Sick. You got to go. You got to go into the <laughs> machine gun folks. And like, can't we just cancel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to run. I got to be somewhere okay. downtown. Well, thanks but, for I mean, having me. And the, and the snow situation is just, we could talk about that next time. Oh, it's, yeah. Freaking plowing failure. I'm just yeah. so, so angry about it. I mean, it's so bad out there. Yeah. So, uh, we live in an Arctic fucking city. You'd, you'd think they'd just be on it this year. You'd, especially after last, year. last winter. And then now yeah. this Bronson guy's up for re-election in April. You'd think he'd be like, 
everything will go to snow. A lot of it's yeah. a state too. These state roads are actually pretty screwed up. Diamond, yeah. um, C Street. Um, anyways, yeah. we'll have you yeah. back on. I, I, I want to yeah. go a round two with you because there's so much I want to talk about in Juno. But yeah, you know, I think for the folks listening and I'll see people, you down there. I'll be people, down there. People who know so. you, I mean, you, you know, you hear from people sometimes like these stories that you never ask anybody about. So you had a really fascinating between the Marines and the LA and the music and the TV. I mean, it's really you know, kind of a fascinating background. It's, I feel like I'm I'm entering 4.0 miles 4.0. Well, I like that. I like that the military remix. You know, Entertainment business, politics. And, and you're gonna are you are you gonna be back in June? Because you have the yeah, thing where you I'm can't down. Do you know? I've been on a one year prohibition. You, you left in January, so you have a year before you can get no, like so involved in politics. January eighth. So so you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna re, you're gonna reactivate yourself in the mm -hmm. legislative the, the private sector world. Yeah, I like plan. that. Well, I'll be I'll be down there. We'll have to. Yeah, we'll see no. every day. So it's yeah. Juno's weird, as weird as it is, and as inconvenient sometimes. It's a cool place to facilitate like meeting people and hanging out I, with people. I always equated it to um, being on deployment with your team in the military. And my experience of being on both deployments where I, I only deployed with my, where we were in a remote camp, you're only with your people, nobody's there with their families, you're eating together, working together, you're, you're really working hard, playing hard, getting that yeah. done. Juno is a little bit that same way. I, I never thought that um, moving, you know, I'm, I'm a huge, you know, Southeast guy. You know, I'm kind of split loyalties between Anchorage, Southeast, South Central, Anchorage, and Juno, or um, Southeast, because I've lived in different places in Southeast. But, I, you know, the idea of having a, moving the legislature up here where you had, you know, at four o'clock every day, everyone jumps in their car and drives home to their families and everything. And that sounds great if you're a legislator, but really, I think, would would take away the yeah. sort of the the social liquid that's really I know Alaskans are like well that's you know unhealthy and stuff it's like it's really not it it's required particularly as partisan as it is these days it's mm -hmm. required to sort of you got to get to know people personally to get stuff done well I'm gonna have you back on the podcast Miles, yeah. cause there's so much more to talk about you're, you're, you're and now that you're not working for the state the government you can be a little more off leash which I which I love that maybe so we'll uh, we'll, we'll have you on again yeah. soon I really okay, enjoyed talking good. to you and um, we'll see you around here too but we'll definitely be in June here in the next Two, two months away, sessions yeah. it's coming up. So Okay. Thanks a lot, Miles Baker, yep. former state director for Governor or Senator Murkowski, former legislative director and infrastructure czar for Governor Dunleavy, former legislative staffer, former records producer, former Marine. I mean, God, this is this is 4.0. This <laughs> 4 is going into Miles 4.0. I, mean, I should be your publicist. You should. Um, thanks a lot, Miles Baker. Yep. Really enjoy talking to you, buddy. Yeah, always, glad always, to be here. always a pleasure. Folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.